You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Okay. Except, what about when we don't? What does it mean when I as a Christian, or you as a Christian, cannot find joy in your heart? For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at ideas in popular American Christianity that direct us away from Jesus. And today we're going to consider a very common idea, and that is that Christians should be joyful all the time. That they should have a deep and abiding joy in all circumstances. Because the Bible says... Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul says it clearly in Philippians 4.4. And so the idea goes that Christians should, even when they're sad, have some deep abiding joy underneath it all. Now I want to be clear up front and make it, I'm not saying Christians don't experience joy. Or, nor am I saying that Christians can't have joy in the midst of very terrible circumstances. That can and indeed does happen. No, I'm talking today about the expectation that Christians should always experience joy and saying to you that it turns us away from the cross of Christ. And it has all sorts of bad results. It makes us feel guilty for feeling grief so that we don't even want to admit it if we're feeling sorrow lest we look unchristian. Right? And when it's accompanied by the idea that our feelings are the way the Holy Spirit talks to us, it becomes downright terrifying. Because if you're supposed to feel joy, if the Holy Spirit's in you, then you will feel joy. And if you don't feel joy, then guess who's not in your heart? So Paul's words, rejoice always, become a threat. Rejoice always or else. It also has the effect of making us struggle to deal with people around us who are grieving or are suffering from the effects of of depression where their heart tells them something's wrong but there isn't necessarily anything wrong around them and many times it can lead us to trite and superficial responses to people's suffering such that we greet sorrow with a christian version of akuna matata it's also the rise and this is a brief soapbox of why the traditional Christian funeral service, where Christians are given a chance, where everyone's given a chance to mourn and grieve while hearing the proclamation of the resurrection, that's being replaced in popular American culture by half-pagan celebration of life services, where we insist on being happy instead of doing what Jesus did at the graveside of his friend, which is weeping. Soapbox over. We're gonna do a deep dive today into the cross of Christ. But first, I want to sum it all up, so in case you get lost, you can know where I'm going and what I'm doing. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to mourn. It is okay to have days where you cannot find or feel joy. And it is precisely in those moments of deepest grief that you are close to Christ. Let's find out why. Last week we talked about how our feelings are not God's voice, they're not the spirit, they're a part of the basic apparatus of the human heart that all people have. 
and they are our heart's perception of the significance of things that we see or think about. So we see uh, our team score a soccer goal, a goal, and our hearts feel excitement. Yay, right? Now, we also talked about how our feelings aren't always right. They might fail to grasp the significance of something, as when we see someone mistreat someone else and we feel utterly indifferent. Our hearts fail to perceive a problem. Something, so, so that leads us then to ask, okay, if joy is, is part of the a feeling in my heart that's supposed to come from seeing something that's making me joyful, well, okay, is everything good? Should everything make me joyful all the time? What about the death of a child? What about the abandonment of a spouse? What about abuse from a parent? Or injustice, or cancer, or a friend renouncing their faith, or a mother dying in childbirth, or the rape of a child? Feeling joy at anything of any of those would be utterly perverse. A basic failure to understand their significance and a refusal to call them evil, pretending instead that they are good. See, there are things in this world about which it is only right to weep. And that is why if we pay close attention, a little bit closer attention to Philippians 4.4, we'll realize Paul is not commanding every individual Christian to feel joy all the time. That would con contradict what he says elsewhere. In the Greek, the word is in the plural. You guys be rejoicing always, rejoicing continually, which means that this command is addressed to the entire Christian community, not to individuals. It's an admonition to the church to continually be celebrating the victory of Christ. And that's a very different thing than telling every individual feel joyful. Because the church celebrates Christ not by feeling a certain way, but by doing something, by proclaiming him crucified and risen. And so Paul, in this verse, is calling the church as a community to continually celebrate the victory of Christ, as a community. But what's important for Paul is that precisely as we celebrate this victory of Christ, we are making space both for those who feel joy and for those who weep. Because that's a fuller account of what Paul has to say about rejoicing. In Romans 12, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Today we're going to talk about how the gospel makes room. Makes room both for those who rejoice and for those who weep. And it does this in the first place. The cross does this in the first place by taking evil seriously. We are all children of Adam and Eve. We all live under the curse of death. And we all, you all, either know the grief of losing a loved one, or you will one day. And the world is full of injustices that, that not only will never be righted, it's hard to even imagine what making them right would look like. Some of you have known intense and unrelenting bodily pain. And that, that rip from your heart any feeling of joy and leave only grief and confusion and doubt. Some of you know firsthand what theologians call the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. It's a Christian experience of faith. And it's about this dark night of the soul that Psalm 39 and Psalm 88 are written. These are not psalms that pretend to be joyful or even that pretend to be to be okay. They have no intention of hiding their grief. They are sheer lament, raw, unfiltered anger and confusion hurled at God's feet. And can you get any darker? End your next table prayer at dinner like this. Look away from me, 
that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. In Jesus' name, amen. Or Psalm 88, which lays the blame for the, the, the actions of others directly at God's feet. You have caused my companions to shun me. You caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. See, the dark night of the, fa of the faith, the dark night of the soul, are those experiences in life when we see something so evil, so tragic, so horrible, that our heart screams out, God's not here. God has abandoned me. I am alone. Or worse, God has become my enemy. And in such moments, Psalm 39 and Psalm 88 are, are precious gifts to you. Bookmark them for when you have those days. Because they make it clear that even the faithful suffer this dark night of faith. The dark night of the soul is, is an experience of those who precisely because they believe in God, look at the world around them and see a problem. A problem that they express in complaint. That they express in complaint. Complaining to God is an act of faith. It's speaking the truth about the world around you and the things you see and you do it all precisely because you believe God's in control. And so what you see doesn't fit with what you believe. And that drives your heart into confusion and anger and grief. Faith does not try to feign joy in the face of grief. It expresses its grief in complaint to God. And if you have any doubt about this, then I invite you to read the book of Job. You only got a slice of it today, but you need to read the whole thing. Go do it. Um, but the story presents us with a man named Job, who right at the outset is just and right. But he loses everything. Wealth, children, health, reputation, gone. And he sits in silent grief, in dust and ashes, and three friends come to comfort him. And initially, they do a really good thing. They join him in the dust, and they sit with him silent for a week. But then, Job summons up words, and he curses the day of his birth. He laments his very existence. And he makes it clear who is responsible for this. He says, God has cast me into the mire. I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you, God, for help, and you do not answer. I, I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Job's grief speaks in no uncertain terms. God is the one ultimately responsible. God has become his perpetrator. And Job's friends are way too pious to handle this. And they start arguing with him back. And they say, no, 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 no. God is just. And no one gets punishments they don't deserve. The evil will fall. So, Job, either you deserve this. Either you've done something wrong due to some sin. Or maybe your children. Maybe they did something wrong and they deserve to die. Or maybe, on the other hand, maybe, Job, you are innocent and you're just making too big a deal out of this. Maybe it's not so bad. Buck up. It can't be that bad, they say, because God is good, and therefore what comes from God must be good. But Job is having none of it. He insists that he is innocent. He defends his righteousness, and he insists that he does not deserve anything that is happening. He makes this clear in chapter 9. He says it very starkly. If I summoned God and he answered me, I would not believe that he's listening to my voice. He crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds for no reason. For no reason. 
See, Job knows that God is just, and he'd be willing to accept punishment from God if that were the case and that were necessary. But he knows that's not what's happening here. He's done nothing wrong, and he sees his loss, and his heart cries out to God, why? Why? Now you, we know why. As readers of the book of Job, we know from chapter 1, we get, we get a God's eye view of the whole story, right? The storyteller invites us to see what goes on in heaven. And we see that from the beginning, Job, God is on Job's side. He vindicates Job at the very beginning, saying he is blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. And we know that the accuser, the Satan, stood up and accused him of serving God for the sake of rewards. And so God allows Job to lose everything so that Job could continue to serve God without anything, thus proving Satan wrong. You, the reader, know all this, but Job knows none of it, and he never gets to know. God never lets him peek behind the curtain and get that God's eye view, even when he appears in a whirlwind at the end of the book. Job powerfully asks God why, and, is, and the book is brutally honest about the fact that we often get no answer. That's the enduring power of the book of Job. It's why it's such a powerful, one of the best books of the Old Testament, because it takes with equal seriousness both the why that is expressed by human suffering and the reality that most often we get no answer. The book of Job shows how suffering imposes on the faithful the problem of evil. Evil. Why does our good God, our powerful, loving God, why does he allow bad things to happen? Our heart sees these bad things and it cries out that question, why, in confusion. Why would God take my child? Why would God take my spouse? Why would God afflict me with a lifelong disease that brings me pain every day? We, like Job, do not get that answer in this life. But that's not stopped philosophers from trying to spill plenty of ink, from spilling plenty of ink, trying to devise answers as to why a good God would allow evil. Sometimes even atheists, we think of this as an atheist, atheistic objection, but really it's not. It's, it's the problem of faith. But very few of these answers come to terms with the way the Bible answers the question. For the Bible does not try to be one of Job's friends who tries to justify God for all the evil that's happened. It actually leaves the origin of evil a complete mystery. We have no idea why the serpent is already evil at the beginning of the story. It never explains it, although Christians have tried to invent stories over the years. Nor does it ever try to answer all the whys that you ask in your life as if God could give a reason that makes it all make sense. No, no, and this is, this is absolutely crucial. God's response to the question why is to ask it himself. God's response to our suffering and our questioning why is to ask that question himself. He does it through the words of Job. He does it through the Psalms. And finally, and most importantly, he puts the question to himself on the lips of his own incarnate son, as he's hanging from a cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross of Christ is God's response to the question of evil. The cross of Christ. I want you to think about those words from my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the only perfect human being that's ever existed. 
The only Son of God who he perfectly entrusts his life to his Father. He is doing what he was sent to do, and he's hanging from that cross, and he cries out to his Father from the darkest night of any human soul, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a deep and dark mystery. And many Christians recoil from it. We don't want to take it seriously because we, we, we suppose Jesus didn't really mean what he said. It's, it's just, he was quoting Psalm 22 and being theatrical. But Jesus did mean it. He means those words in their fullest possible sense. He, is, he could have quoted any number of psalms to console himself, but he chose the words of Psalm 22 because they perfectly reflected his heart. They perfectly told the truth about the significance of what was happening. And unless we come to terms with the forsakenness of Christ, we will miss what the, the powerful response that the Bible has to our suffering and our grief. Because the truth is that Jesus was abandoned by his Father. Jesus was abandoned by his Father as he hung there on the cross, innocent victim though he was, he was bearing within himself all the weight of human evil and sin. Every wicked word, every cruel deed, every lie, every murder, God gave these all to Jesus to become his own. He identified with sinful humanity fully and completely. Jesus became the abuser, the liar, the gossip, the murderer, the rapist. Jesus became the cumulative sum of all human evil, including your evil, by the way, so that God could judge all of it once and for all in him. And that's why God abandoned, the Father abandons Jesus in that moment. Because he was the one and only sinner. And he damns him, condemning him to outer darkness. Once and for all, he was crushed, beaten, and stricken and afflicted by the justice of God. Crushed for our iniquities, becoming the very curse of God that our sin provoked. In that moment, Jesus was thrust into outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and cut off from the presence of the Lord. Or as Paul puts it, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. On the cross, Jesus bore all the evil. He bore all the evil and all that comes from it. Sin, God's judgment, and death, but he also bore our sorrow. This is really important too. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See, Jesus didn't just identify with sinners on the cross. He identified with the sinned against, with the lonely, with the suffering, with the bereaved. He identifies fully and completely with everything that's wrong with sinful humanity, including our suffering and our mourning. He makes all our griefs, all of your griefs, his own. Every tear that has ever been shed, Jesus cried. Every life that has been withered by oppression, Jesus suffered. Every hour of fear and dread, he waited. Every cry of pain was his. Every hope that has died and every love that has been betrayed is his. And this is the hidden truth. The hidden truth that our hearts cannot see and therefore cannot feel, is that Jesus is with us utterly and completely in our moments of deepest sorrow. Jesus is with us utterly and completely in our moments of deepest sorrow. Every mother who has wept over her dying child was with Jesus. 
Every slave torn from his family was with Jesus. Every soldier who sat alone in the trenches was with Jesus. Every battered spouse, every depressed heart, every angry prayer and exhausted sigh or paranoid doubt or crippling fear are his. Every human who ever asked why, Jesus asked. In every single moment of your life, when you have felt abandoned by God, such that your heart cries out in confusion and grief, Jesus has been with you, though you cannot see it. And there is no place in this world that is so forsaken by God that Jesus has not been there. That's what we mean by the descent into hell, when we confess in the creed. Jesus descended into hell, not as his captive, but as the one who's already suffered it all, as the victorious victim who had already plumbed its deepest abyss. For all the horrendous depths of our sin and evil and death cannot fathom the infinite love of God in Christ. So when he descended into hell, he shattered its gates. He broke its bars and liberated its captives. And because death and hell could not contain him, neither can sin or grief consume him. So you can never be so far from God that Christ is not with you. That's why Martin Luther called suffering one of the marks of the church. He called the cross and suffering one of the marks by which you could tell you were in the presence of the church. Because as the one who suffered death and conquered hell, hell could not contain him. Death could not contain him. He rose as the immortal life, as the new creation, glorious and fulfilled. And that's why he reached for Psalm 22. Because he confesses the beginning, knowing the end, knowing that it says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And what's crucial for us to see about the resurrection is that when Jesus rises, it does not erase his suffering. It transfigures his suffering. The wounds in his hand and feet and side are still there, but different, shining with a glory of the new creation. And the resurrection is the promise to all of us that all of our wounds will be transfigured. All of our suffering will be transfigured. Because these wounds of Christ in his hands and feet inside, they are the mark of your grief and your pain and your sin that he bore. And they are the promise that when you rise, every sorrow, every grief, every loss will be similarly transfigured in the light of his glory. Paul says this in a number of places, but probably the most powerful is 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See, the promise is, is that in the day of the resurrection, not only will the tears be wiped from your eyes, you will know the meaning of your suffering. You will know, oddly enough, as hard as it is to see, that you had a good life. That God truly was working all things for your good. This is a beautiful and deeply mysterious answer to evil that the Bible gives. That suffering will end because Christ has taken it. It will end, and it will end in such a way that it changes the meaning of all of it. One theologian writes, when the risen Christ returns and floods this creation with God's suffering love, every human being who died in affliction, 
Every tortured child, every person whose life was swallowed up by oppression, every human life will be transfigured by the glory of Christ so that they will be able to praise God and say with all their hearts, God gave me a good life. And even those in hell will have no choice but to acknowledge the truth that God gave them a good life. And those who enter the kingdom will do so in gladness and rejoicing, every tear wiped from their eye, knowing not only the meaning of their suffering, but also that their suffering was glorious, like the wounds of Christ. And I know this is unimaginable. I know this is unimaginable. This is a mystery so deep that my, my mind can't get there, and I know my words fall short. But if the gospel is anything less than this, then it's a kuna matata. If the gospel is anything less than that Christ totally identified with the grief and sorrow of all humankind and transfigures it all in his resurrection, then we have nothing to say to those who grieve. And I don't know exactly how God will do this. I don't know how God will say to a child who died of torture that he had a good life and that that child will know, so, know it. But that's because we are not the readers of the book of Job. We are Job or we're Job's friends. We are in the story. We are in the story of God, which means we're not given to know every reason why. We're not given to know the exact meaning of everything. We are given to wait in hope. To wait in hope. That's your last blank. We as the church, we continually celebrate. We continually rejoice in the victory of Christ to give hope to those who have joy and to give hope to those who grieve. Paul puts this powerfully in our epistle reading. He says, The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory of God or the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Bible's response to human suffering, then, is to tell us our place in God's story to tell us our place in God's story so that we can know the outcome and know that we are in the middle, not the end. And so while we might know the outcome and celebrate the outcome, we don't know all the twists and turns that will get us there. But the promise of the gospel is that if we could see the end, we'd understand the present differently. And so the fight of the Christian life, the life of, is not feeling joy all the time. It's a fight, a fight to hope, a fight to wait in hope. It's like the great stories that Sam Gamgee talks about at the end of the movie, The Two Towers. He says, it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened. But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Every darkness must pass. 
a new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those are the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had a lot of chance, chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something, that there is some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. The Christian life is not the life of continual joy. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to grieve. It's a fight to wait and hope, like Job, like Job's friends. It's a struggle with doubt, with repentance, with hope in the face of darkness. It's a life that Jesus described as carrying a cross. Carrying a cross. And that's what we do as Christians. We take up our cross and follow him. Sometimes that's the cross of our own grief or the cross of our own loss and depression. Sometimes it's a cross of our neighbor and the cross of compassion. Sometimes we're in the place of Job's friends and we are called to sit and wait and pray alongside those who suffer. But when we do this, we don't pretend to know why. We don't pretend that it should be all feel okay. We wait in silence and carry that cross of compassion, knowing that this suffering is real now, but it won't last forever. And that means we can bear the burdens of those who fight with depression as well. Not because we know some secret that will change their sadness into joy, but because we know the story of God and we know how it ends. So we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and invite them to this continual celebration of the victory of Christ so that they can bring their sorrow and their joy and lay it at the foot of the cross. And we can say again the glorious end to God's story, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Amen. And may the peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts, your minds, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and we invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org. Thank you.